Welcome everyone to this new episode of the Next Page podcast. Today we're going to explore pan-European economic integration and the role of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. And we're going to do this accompanied in this journey by the Under Secretary General, Executive Director of the ECE, Economic Commission for Europe, Madame Tatiana Molchan, who's been appointed as Executive Director last year. She is the youngest Undersecretary General in the UN system today, and she's certainly the youngest Executive Secretary of the Commission, so a great welcome to you on the podcast today. Today, we want to explore in particular the role of the Commission and how it serves multilateralism. We also take a look at the vision for pan-European economic integration that is at the core of the mandate of the Commission and the challenges facing the wider European region. As we know, it's a region that today has a war back within its borders, but it's a region that is still an engine for multilateralism and economic integration. So, Under Secretary General Tatiana Molchen, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure to see you again in our library. And please tell our audience a little bit about you, your background in diplomacy, and how you became Executive Director of UNECE. Thank you so much. And first of all, thank you for the interest towards the work that we are doing at the UNECE. You're asking, uh, I mean, and you have pointed out that I'm one of the youngest, and the youngest actually, USG. I think that's very clear, also an indication of where multilateralism and UN in general is going, you know, having this meaningful youth engagement, even if uh, I would say that it's already beyond youth in my case, but it's also a possibility to have more engagement. And this is how it brought me to actually UN, to, after more than 20 years working for a national government in the foreign relations, in diplomacy. It was really this wish and this view that you can do more. You know, being all my professional life in the public sector, so when you deliver for the public interest, it's not that I don't like civil society or academia or the private sector, but really in the public sector where you can make policies to change things, to influence things. And coming from a small country, in my case, you had probably this possibility even more realistic and you could grasp it. And this is what attracted me also in the UN system. It is still the public sector. But at the global level, in this case at the regional level, where you can make a difference in certain policy. And UNICE is really one of the UN entities where you can best feel the results of your actions. And most of the activity and our work impacts daily life of each and everyone without many realizing it. But many of our instruments of our work is actually uh, something we use in our daily life. So this is what attracted, this is how I came to be uh, leading the UNSC, the Economic Commission for Europe. And we're going to explore, we're going to see how ECE's role as an impact upstream in multilateralism and downstreams in the life of citizens, as you pointed out. So let's start the exploration and let's talk about the Commission itself and its role in international cooperation. So just for the audience, ECE is highly rated by the member states and by the experts for several things. And the first is 
its ability to carry on the work of very many intergovernmental and treaty bodies that are part of the constellation of ECE. And uh, there is widespread you know, praise by member states for the quality of your work, the timeliness of your reports. And even I have read in reports, not from inside the UN, but from the academic sector, that the responsiveness of the staff, for example, is highly rated by member states. So all these are good things. However, ECE work, in particular, the specific work it does, is not so known. I have myself 30 years of experience in the UN, and ECE is not something that you that people know unless they are involved. So this is an opportunity for all the people who are listening to us to get to know better what it does. So let's take advantage of the fact that you're here to hear it from you. So, yeah, what is ECE? What it does? Let's talk about this large number of actors that are involved, the variety of instruments that you manage, the diversity of the sectors. So over to you. Tell us and take us into ECE for a while. Well, that's quite a complicated task if someone who has been in the system for 30 years still grasps with understanding what exactly ECE is and how exactly to explain what our role is. And I'm always telling, even before I started in this position, because I was working quite closely with ECE in my previous position, it's like a hidden gem. And not only in Geneva, it's also globally, because you rightly pointed out Our work is very, very well known by experts, be it transport people, those who are responsible from the manufacturing. So I'm not talking only about governments. The industry knows, the automotive industry knows us very well because we are the one saying, well, in terms of safety, these are the rules that everyone would follow. Or the energy or the environment. Environment, we have such a strong network of experts, statistics. So yes, we are known to the experts, not as much to the general public, definitely not as much to even to the larger diplomatic community. I have, this is one of my uh, assessments since I came. And also to the financial people sometimes, because that matters. You need resources to deliver on the mandate. But let me try to explain, I mean, why and uh, What is exactly our commission doing? First of all, we've been around for more than 75 years. So we've been established in 47. And we are one of the five regional commissions. So we are one of UN entities, a multilateral structure, and UN entity. So we are part of this uh, system. Our name, Economic Commission. Let's start from there. We've been created after the Second World War. One of the key mandates was to bring economic development cooperation among the countries. In our case, it's the wider pan-European. Even if our name says European Commission, we actually have members from North America, so US and Canada are also members of EC. We also have members from Central Asia. We also have members, I mean, the old Turkey is a member also of EC. So to bring this economic integration and recovery to a large extent, because remember we are talking about the time when uh, there was a lot of division, but also a strong need for reconstruction across Europe and wider Europe. So this is our scope to bring this economic cooperation. But what does it mean in reality? How do you force countries or how do you encourage countries to achieve this economic cooperation? First of all, Economic integration and cooperation cannot be reached if you are working by yourself inside a country. So you have to work with others. You have to work with countries. So you see it's also a platform for dialogue. 
it's where our members meet and they discuss, okay, if we want to reach progress in the transport field, if we want to make more connections, more secure, removing bottlenecks along the corridors, they have to discuss it. It cannot happen by magic. It has to be based on some dialogue. So first of all, it's a platform for dialogue among member states. Second, one cannot cooperate without certain rules. And I will start with our key or flagship instruments. I always explain what we are doing. You know, imagine traffic in transport. If there wouldn't be any rules and science, that would be chaotic. And this convention on road science is one of the instruments that we at EC, we are custodians of that convention and many more in the transport field. All standards, all conventions regarding transport of dangerous goods on roads, for example, on water, on clean air, this has to be regulated at one point or the other. So this is part of our work that we are doing, if I put it very simply, in all areas that you can consider economy, and that's a wide concept. So we are trying to support, and we are not only trying, we are delivering in supporting our members and the global, I would say, community in reaching this economic integration and cooperation. So trade, developing trade and cooperation, for example, accession to WTO, this is also very important to us. We understand that only being part of this multilateral trading system, countries can really achieve meaningful economic development. We do support countries in that process as well. So as you see, this is in very simple words what we are trying and what we have been doing in EC. And there will be more time for us to bring forward some of the famous examples of ECE products or services that actually became of normal use around the world, not only in the region, the geographic region, where your member states come from. But I wanted to ask you another question, which is maybe more general, more upstream, when you look at it as a diplomat, the diplomat you are, and as a leadership role in ECE, is all the work you do, how does it help the system the global system, to maintain and uphold multilateralism in times that are difficult, which are difficult. We should not deny that the world is going through a difficult time. So seen at, you know, from the balcony of your leadership position, how would you say ECE's work is helping multilateralism? I'm a strong believer and to a certain extent an optimist when it comes to how we contribute to that. Nowadays, it's not, you know, the times of uh, really optimistic views, but still, I think it's exactly by our work is how multilateralism proves itself, being relevant, being efficient. It's not easy. There is a lot of skepticism to whatever multilateralism means. We see a lot of tendency of nationalistics and egoistic movements, I would even say. And that started not only with the degradation of the overall environment and these numerous conflicts, wars that we have across Europe, but also globally. But it started earlier. And unfortunately, I have to say that the pandemic, COVID-19, was really something that brought a lot of damage to the whole multilateral system. It also had some good examples. I mean, we saw how the multilateral system matters when it meant to bring solutions to countries to cope with COVID. But still, I think we are still lingering. We are still coping with the effects of that. So against this backdrop, of course, any efforts to deliver are more complicated. But still, I see that exactly the work that we are doing at EC is bringing us to very concrete results 
and proving once again that we need this multilateral cooperation. I'm always saying, just imagine you don't have an institution like EC. I mean, you don't have the same rules for traders in when it comes to same standards on some products, on fruits and vegetables. You don't have rules on transport by rail. You don't have rules on emissions. That would have been needed in any case. So we see how despite difficulties, countries are working, in particular in areas where they cannot stop at the borders. And this is, of course, environment, climate, water, transport, it proves itself. And I also, even though our mandate is an economic one, yes, economy at its core, I would say that exactly this kind of cooperation are ones that are contributing to peace building, you know, preventing conflicts, because I'm also based on my previous career as a diplomat. I know how important is dialogue, interaction, and joint cooperation to prevent conflicts. One of our instruments, the Water Convention, for example, has helped many countries to avoid some of the tensions among themselves because many conflicts appear not, uh, I mean, without any ground to it. It's also because of a lack of understanding, lack of knowledge on certain subjects. So by our very concrete work in specific fields, without labeling them, you know, as peace and conflict prevention, I think it brings a lot of dialogue, at least among parties, because they have to talk if they share the same air, the same globe, the same planet. Thank you so much for this reflection. I do agree with you. And it's proven over and over again that international cooperation in maybe more downstream, more specifics, helps a great deal in maintaining equilibrium and peace. Let's go back to your region. You said it before, you were created in 47. That time Europe was devastated by the Second War. So this desire of reconstruction, rehabilitation, and also integration to some extent so I wanted to bring forward the vision of ECE today for the future. Now, we're no longer earning 47. We hope that we'll never be back there. So this vision of pan-European economic integration, you know, what is the long-term thing about that? And how does it relate to the future of the region of these countries that are part of uh, the organization? I think for the region, again, in this case, we cannot look at it only as an individual region. We have to look at it in complex with the rest of the world. And it's very timely and it's very useful that we now have this discussion on how the future should look like beyond the 2030, looking ahead of us. And we'll have a summit of the future this year. We are working towards understanding what exactly, how we want to build the future and how we should do this, looking not only globally, but in the region as well. How do they integrate with that? And I will mention, for example, one interesting aspect. You were referring to the fact that we've been created 47 in an Europe that was torn still by a lot of divided Europe. Still, it was the time of the Cold War. So it was a lot of the efforts were directed towards reconstructing and also towards bringing closer the members, you know, creating bridges, uh, creating synergies and integration. Now this very practical economic or uh, this more, you know, specific approach has shifted slightly. We still have the same objective and unfortunately, and I'm very sad 
to say that even 75 after we were established as a commission, some of the objectives like reconstructions after a war are still valid because this is what we will be also doing once the war against Ukraine is over. We will be supporting with the reconstruction of the cities, with the environment ecosystem in the country trying to provide support. So that is still there, unfortunately. What has changed and what, where do I see our future? Now, already for more than five years, even longer, the sustainability. So this is the new element that appeared. We cannot just regulate and provide rules, for example, for economic development, for trade, how that it should be faster, that we should remove barriers like papers, additional documentation. We also have to include every time the impact on the sustainability. And this is where I see our core added value, but also vision for the coming years, that all our work, be it in transport, in energy, environment, trade, statistics, population development, it should always include the sustainability. We cannot explore the resources, nature resources, as we used to. And this is where I would like to underline that It's the role of the public sector. It's the role of international community. It's the role of entities like ours, UN in general, to impose that. Because, yes, private sector is quite committed, but still, you know, private is private for one reason. There should be a commercial part to that. Otherwise, it's not uh, sustainable for them in, in that sense. So we are the ones that are the guardians of the sustainability. And this is where I see us already working now, but putting even a, a stronger emphasis in the coming years. You mentioned the war in Ukraine. I wonder how is this affecting the strategy forward for an international organization? Does it make it more difficult to work together? Does it make you united because you're really looking at once the war is over, what you want to do? How does it affect ECE? It affects everyone. I mean, ECE, like many of the international organizations, was built upon consensus about the intention of its members to work together. So they came together because they wanted to work together, or they agreed. Now you do understand that that's a little bit more complicated. And in certain cases, we feel that, okay, that cooperation is happening, but only in the areas that you cannot avoid that, basically. In a certain way, it also sharpens, you know, we get rid of the, any additional flowers, you know, embellishments in the cooperation process. We go straight to the most needed and urgent problems. So definitely it's more difficult. We have these huge challenges in terms of population, social, humanitarian impact. Overall, that spreads, I mean, it's not only one, one organization, it affects the entire multilateral system. But when it comes to our concrete uh, work, This is one of my feelings, that it helped us to really prioritize, fight for what is needed and it's urgent, and we move ahead. And uh, this is proven also by the number of still decisions that we were able to take despite of the many challenges. I mean, it's not only the war against Ukraine and that the fact that our members are basically parties to this war, but we have other conflicts in the region, as you might know well. And it's a challenge, but despite all of these conflicts, all of these tensions, Last year, the year before, we managed to approve important regulations, even convention after 10 and 15 years. In two weeks, we'll have a major transport conference in Geneva, bringing together members not only from EC, but globally. Because in certain areas, EC is acting as um, beyond, let's say, its membership as a custodian of global instruments. And... Uh, It will bring together in Geneva ministers, governments, civil society from the transport field, and they will endorse 
a strategy on how to decarbonize the transport sector, one thing. Second, they will also start implementing or signing a convention on the facilitation of railroad carriage of goods. So you see work is continuing. But this is what I say. It's not easier. It's more complicated when parties don't have trust among themselves. But it sharpens also our instruments and uh, the delivery. It's an also a good demonstration of um, how multilateralism is able to absorb dissonances and even conflicts, armed conflicts, like is the case in Ukraine, and continues to advance. This is something that is important for our listeners because most people who are not from the multilateral disciplines think that because there is a war or conflict, the multilateralism has failed forever. It's gone now because now it's being replaced by a conflict. And you are demonstrating with your examples that is basically never the case. Multilateralism continues to advance, continues to exist. Things are more complicated, but the cooperation doesn't disappear, doesn't go away entirely. This is very, very important. I wanted to ask you, though, what are the other obstacles that you face? Clearly, now, the fact that two of your members are in an armed conflict, this is clearly a visible obstacle. But if that weren't the case, what are the obstacles that in your area of work you see most frequently? One of the obstacles, and I think when we started our discussion, is also a good understanding of our work. Sometimes you have a feeling that you are in competition with fancy subjects. You know, we were joking at one time that when it was COVID, everyone became all of a sudden experts in health, you know, in viruses, in whatever that meant in vaccines. Now, after the war started, we have experts in conflict management, resolution, whatever you put it. And as I'm calling them fancy subject, you know, the it subject. We always have more attention and a tendency to prioritize. You would always prioritize peace over, let's say, cooperation in a sector like statistics, yes, in principle. You would always prioritize human rights. And I totally agree. You have to. I mean, and when we have scarce resources, and this is another challenge because we do not have now, there is a competition also about resources. So a lack of understanding that, yes, prioritization is important, but you won't be able to deliver on human rights if we don't have the clean air to continue to live on this planet. This is one of the challenges, and this is why we are working towards building this better understanding on what exactly is the impact of the work that uh, we are doing. Still, in these days, as I was mentioning, there is this scarcity of resources. I have to say that I wasn't expecting when starting this job that it will be so much about administrative part, uh, dealing with budgets, but budgets not only dealing with them, but really fighting for having the appropriate resources to deliver on your mandate. So this is uh, some of the challenges, but it's not only typical for us, for EC. Unfortunately, this is for the entire multilateral system. And for some countries, this is the relevance, how we deal with that. And I built a lot on my previous experience by being more efficient and by coordinating among the many entities or avoiding overlappings, having really, really a good cooperation and using our resources in the best way possible. I mean, it's particularly relevant in Geneva, where we have so many entities. We have WHO dealing with health. We have WTO on trade. We have ITU on telecommunications. We have UNCTAD, so many organizations. We work with all of them. We work with WIPO. We work on innovation. With the World Health Organization, we work on programs on transport, health and environment. 
So it's a, the PEP, as we call it, one of the programs. So we try to use our resources as efficient as possible. And that is achievable, but it needs a good coordination also among ourselves. So notwithstanding these obstacles, ECE is delivering all the time and some of deliverables are very visible. They're known by everyone around, even people who are not expert in multilateralism know about the tier convention. They see the trucks on the highways, you know, that is an ECE product. So I wanted to go on a little parade of examples for people really to learn from you directly about, you know, the concrete output of the regulatory cooperation role of of ECE, which is basically demand-driven. This is what you're explaining to us. You say, you know, countries do need rules. They do need to agree on certain things if certain industries have to work and certain services have to go to the population. So can you give us some examples of this work? What comes to my mind is, you know, extractive industries, but also what you do in connection with the Agenda 2030 and the, the global, the Sustainable Development Goals, for example? The challenge here is which one should I pick? And uh, because there are so many examples of concrete impact on the ground. Since you mentioned the tier convention, the transport sector, this is one where you really, I think, feel the implication for the us ordinary citizens in general when we interact daily with some of the results of the work of UC. And you are right. It is well known. Sometimes you would read in the news and say UN new instrument, like recently. Will UN be able to update its regulations for the autonomous vehicles, you know, these smart systems of driving? And it was on our platform, EC platform, that these discussions were held two weeks ago here in Geneva. This is the work done on the platforms of EC. This is one very concrete example. Experts come together to establish the rules, how this autonomous or how should I call them, I mean, to be more clear, this systems of controlling the vehicles should perform better for the safety on the road. So they are not too smart or smart enough, but also efficient and safe enough for all of us to exploit. Transport is the field like the TIR Convention, which has brought a lot of advantages in facilitating trade globally. And when I say globally, it's beyond our region. I mean, we have accessions from India, for sure, as a member. I do remember that well because we've been discussing with them. Iraq, Uganda, Philippines. I mean, we have so many countries around the world being part of this convention. All of the standards where it comes, seatbelt. We even have campaign about the seatbelt and wearing the seatbelt. We have a special envoy on road safety, UN special envoy, but he's hosted by us in EEC. Jean Todt, who is campaigning a lot about importance of safety, road safety. You know, like wearing the seatbelt and seatbelt and this standard was developed by EC. So this is one area. On the environment, again, there are many, many examples. I would start, and I think we have one of the stars of our work is the Water Convention. Water Convention, it regulates in particular transboundary also water. How do we exploit water as a resource and how do we exploit it in a correct way? in a way that is acceptable, in particular when you have transboundary water resources. You know, you can have a lot of conflict between countries who are upstream or downstream, if it's a river, this case. But on environment, one interesting instrument is also our conventions, like Aarhus Convention. And based on that convention, we have a special 
envoy even that is assessing and supporting defenders, environment defenders. And we've been all seeing lately in the news, you know, sometimes environment defenders are considered as terrorists, even they are qualified as, as terrorists. But really this instrument, which was developed on the platform of EC, and which again has been endorsed globally by many countries, has supported civil society across the globe to have their voices heard. And we know what is the impact when some of the impacts on the environment from the industry can have on us in general. Also air. I know this is one of the instruments, again, one of our conventions that really, it's the only one basically in its way, except I think in the EU they have similar regulations. It's how we regulate emissions, because by this convention, we have imposed these limitations on pollutant emissions. And I know that some of my colleagues even have made calculations on the impact of this convention. So by the fact that countries have imposed limitations, we can say that premature deaths annually, 600,000 of premature deaths are prevented on a yearly basis, basically just due to the fact that we have reduced these harmful emissions. And since you mentioned about resources, and one very important area for us is also critical raw materials. You know, it's a very critical raw materials. These are minerals, basically, the ones that from the name, as we put it, these are rare minerals. And at one point, the exploitation was really happening fast without any regulation. So within EC, our experts have worked very extensively to at least classify that. We started with that because in order to be able to quantify, to know, to understand what's the impact of their use and how scarce these resources are, we have developed, uh, you see, the two instruments, the classification for resources in general and the management system for resources. And I have to say that these are, again, endorsed globally as a classification and resource management system. It has been endorsed by Yakosok, it has been endorsed by EU, for example, in its Critical Raw Materials Act. You know, in these days when these critical raw materials are used, minerals are used extensively, for example, in electric vehicles, you know, in batteries, in wind turbines. And in one way we are talking, oh, being more green, green technologies, but we were not counting how that affects another part, like the critical minerals. So we have provided this classification and they have been endorsed globally. Now it's possible to manage, to assess, to quantify, to follow, to understand what exactly, but it's happening how scarce our resources are, and eventually to recycle from the batteries, as I was mentioning, or from other components. So just for our audience maybe to understand better, it's very clear that ECE, within its own mandate, works at the standards and works on these specifics, and then some of these are adopted globally. How does it work? So is it to say that members of the EC, so European countries, the wider European region, have these ideas, then they start working on the standards. And then what is the legal mechanism that makes, you know, this convention go global? So it's other member states come in and say, hey, can I sign the convention? Or what is the process that UN has in place to make ECE work go global, basically? Some of our older instruments, because we have conventions, we have to define, I mean, to make this difference, we have both conventions, but then we have standards. When it comes to conventions, some of the older ones, 
some of them from 53, I think, one of the oldest that we have, because we have around 60 only in the transport field, you know, 60 conventions in the transport, that's a large number. Some of them were developed indeed in the working groups by experts in this region. But now when once we have, because the ITC, this Inland Transport Committee, has been around also for a very long time, so it's not only EC members working on that. And of course, when we have one of the instruments after the experts working groups have participated, it's not a closed exercise. Whoever is expert on that specific field, because you've noticed that EC is dealing a lot with very, very narrow areas of competence. So usually you would gather expertise not only from the region, but really globally. And um, once the convention is adopted and it's open for signature, most of them, not all, but most of them are open for signature internationally. You know, many countries accede after they see the usefulness of these uh, instruments. And that is the what happened with our water convention. We had only last year five countries that exceeded all outside of our region. And I think most of them were from Latin America and Africa. And now we have seen there is a long queue because it's an instrument, it's a convention. You can apply it in relations between countries. So it's an expertise, an instrument, it's a good that can be used publicly. Now there is a process when it's about standards. For example, last December, it's a very narrow example. In this case, I was talking about the standards that we are setting, for example, fruits and vegetables. In December, we have, we have had experts uh, specialized on sweet potatoes coming together in Geneva to agree on standards. And this is not exactly legally binding. I mean, if you participate in those discussions, that doesn't mean that you'll have to use them. But countries who have an interest in this sector, they are present. I know that South Africa was present and even co-chairing some of the discussions because those who are involved in trade, they need this unified standards and rules. They want to be sure that when they indicate a letter or a number in an invoice or in a document, they have the same meaning, be it in Latin America, be it in Europe or in Asia. So this is how it happens. It depends a lot of interests of the country. None of the instruments has this, like someone enforces it. It's because they are useful and they prove their utility, if I can say, to governments, to population. Sounds like a powerhouse of standards and conventions like yours should never have economic or financial issues because it's really useful and it goes beyond the group of countries that uh, they're actually discussing and making the effort. So, yeah, it's beyond me how we could have uh, budgetary issues for an organization that is so so efficient and dictating standards that are useful to everybody, basically like people, normal citizens, as you were saying. As we wrap up this conversation together, I was curious about 2030, this symbolic you know, number, this symbolic moment in time, that is now upon us, basically. Here we are in 24, going for 25 already, thinking, you know, our budget submissions are for next year, so five years to go. What is ECE, you know, vision beyond 2030? How do you look at that as a potential for the mandate that you have? That's a very, uh, again, complicated and interesting question. Because 2030, yes, it's very close to us. But as we have looked in particular last year during the SDG summit that took place in New York in September, we have realized that many of the goals that we have established, the targets, we are well below 
the established targets. So now I'll be very frank. One of the key objectives for us is, first of all, to try really to accelerate and to recover as much as possible by 2030. I mean, yes, we should look beyond. And this is why we have discussions like the Pact of the Future, what we do in the next... But first, I still strongly believe let's still keep very strong focus on the current challenges. Let me say what we have to do and what we want to do now. So first, accelerating in all areas. As I was saying, yes, peace is a key element that we are escaping somehow. We are not having peace in any sector in the globe, but also climate. We've had last year the warmest year globally. So that is an alarm that we should all direct our efforts. And it's a horizontal issue. It's not something that our environment team will be addressing only. It's also what people from transport, from uh, energy should address, be it uh, emissions, methane emissions. And we'll have a global forum, by the way, in uh, March about this, about global methane um, forum here in Geneva. How to do that? One of the ways that we in EC are trying to increase the speed in this area is also by involving as many as possible in actors in a meaningful way. Local authorities, forum of mayors. You know, we've had several meetings of a forum of mayors and we have seen their mayors, those who are sometimes on the front line of some of the challenges that we are talking about. So I think this will be a priority also for the future, you know, beyond 2030, really having this meaningful engagement of all actors. And one of the priorities, by the way, in the pact for the summit of the future is exactly meaningful involvement, but in this case, youth involvement. And uh, this is another area. I mean, this is about the future. So meaningful involvement of all actors, accelerating all our efforts when it comes to sustainable development, that stays as global commitment for all of us. And climate is key. That how exactly we shape which instruments we will use beyond 2030. That is another question. But it's sad enough that will stay as a priority for us also beyond 24, like climate, for example. I'm not as optimistic that we will be able really to not have this as a problem anymore after 2030. So that will be definitely something we'll have to, to deal with in the future. Thank you for all that. Um, I know that I will never look at EC in the same way as before because now I really see, really see, thanks to your examples and explanations, a lot of things that uh, were in the shadows for me as, as an observer. So thank you for all of that. And incidentally, library here, the library we are is also the library of ECE as well. And we are the custodians of your uh, official documents, etc. So we have this relationship of work. I'm very pleased that we have you at the helm of, of the organization today. If there is one final thought from you as a person, as a woman in a position of leadership of this organization that you want to send out to those who are listening, what would that be? I think it's to stay committed. There are so many triggers to just get desperate and to say, well, there is no use in doing whatsoever, in pushing for an agenda. Just keeping this commitment and it will deliver. And having this confidence, not only in the institutions that we have, but in ourselves, that we can deliver some change. That is my key message, I think. Under Secretary General Tatiana Molchan, Executive Director of uh, UNECE, the Economic Commission for Europe, thank you so much for taking the time to be on our podcast today. Thank you so much and also once again for the interest and for helping us really to show the impact of the work of the multilateral system for the daily life. Thank you. Thank you.